Thank you for listening to the Biotech and Breweries podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Schroeder, and today I'm joined by Dan Chevillard from Veracta Therapeutics and Noah Scoville from Virgin Brewing. All right, Dan and Noah, I got you guys on. Thanks for coming on the Biotech and Breweries podcast. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. Yep. Like so, um, Super stoked. Yeah, good. Uh, this will be fun. So, Dan, really excited to, to catch up with you a little bit and get the latest on what is going on at Veracta. Uh, but before we do that, we get to start out with the fun part here. So we've got Noah Scoville from Burgeon Brewing joining. He's he's managed to pick out four beers for us to try, which, you know, Dan, again, I, I don't think we're going to be able to drink the, them in their entirety today. But um, but Noah, why don't you, if you don't mind, maybe tell us a, l- a little bit about Burgeon. Yeah, hell yeah. So as far as you know, today, this is so awesome that we're able to do this. I mean, Zoom's been killing it, obviously, during the pandemic. So rad to meet one of the Dans in person and then virtually, of course, the other Dan as well. But this is cool, you know, as far as the podcast and putting these two, you know, great industries together. But um, yeah, I, I mean, for Beard, for me, I'm super stoked on what it means as far as community and just the essence of the craft. But uh, for Virgin Beer, started about five years ago, actually just celebrated our fifth anniversary in January of this year. Uh, do a big invitational in our main space in Carlsbad. Uh, 36 different breweries came in, brewed specialty beers just for the occasion. We had over a thousand different guests coming in and trying and checking out our beer. And uh, it was really the, the, the true spirit of the craft for sure. Virgin was started by three dudes, all local North County guys, which is kind of a huge tie for me. I'm North County, San Diego, born and raised as well. Uh, went to La Costa Canyon High School, which is the same high school that all three owners went to. Same, you know, wants and needs and love for the craft beer as all the owners as well. Uh, super small company, really just hit 50 employees, but I would say about six months ago, just with the addition of our third location, which is down in Little Italy. Other spots, main tasting room and production breweries in Carlsbad. And that's been there for the entire enti- entirety of the company, which is pretty rad. And that's where I work at and manage. Um, and then we also have a tasting room out in Escondido. So, you know, five years old, Three locations, uh, full San Diego distribution, all self-distributed by us, multiple core beers, multiple awards for the beers, just uh, good vibes, warm vibes and cold beer, you know? <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Question. I love the the logo that you guys have. Yeah. Like this. I don't know if you're able to see on the camera, but it's like a really cool tree with, with like a, yeah. roots coming down and then the tree kind of looks like a beer. What's the backstory to that? Is that just a cool design that someone came up with or is there a story to it? Yeah, totally a great story, actually, and a great question. Um, as far as the logo and the name actually itself, Virgin means to grow, to prosper, to branch out. So you've seen our tasting room, of course, Dan, and I don't know if other Dan has seen some photos of it or have been in there before as well, but we have, you know, all this reclaimed cedar for the entirety of the bar. We have, you know, this living wall with plants growing all over. We have this other tree that's sprouting up in the middle of the tasting room. It's, it's very like reclaimed wood and outdoorsy and and reclaim the wild type vibe. And the reason why we wanted to do that is because of the naming. We wanted to, you know, tie to the earth and where we come from. And the logo kind of encompasses that as well. Three main things in there is going to be the community, the beer itself, and really just like growth and like branching on to like whatever you guys might be stoked on. And that might be, you know, biotech, that might be craft beer, that might be family, whatever it is. But like community is such a core thing for us. I mean, obviously making great beer is a huge thing as well because Without good beer, especially in San Diego with 160 different breweries, you're, you're kind of going to get drowned out. And you know, there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of stuff going on. So you got to have good beer to separate yourselves from the others, for sure. 
Really cool. Yeah. So, so we've, I mentioned we've got four beers here. You want to maybe just tell us a little bit about each and and um, and maybe why kind of why you chose them? For sure. Yeah. So um, like I mentioned earlier, we do um, have a core lineup of beers, and I actually wanted to pick just from those because with beer drinkers, it's sometimes really hard to like figure out which maybe beer you're stoked on. Like, oh, I have a friend that's really really excited about IPAs. But like my next buddy might not like hoppy beers, which is tending to be what IPAs are, you know, or, you know, I've got a friend who really enjoys lagers and being crisp and dry and really easy drinking, but then won't even touch a stout or things like that. So I think for our lineup at Burgeon, we really kind of encompass beers for beer drinkers, but also beers for people to kind of get introduced to the industry and craft beer as well. I, I would say most of the beers that you're going to get at Burgeon, especially in the core lineup, you're not going to take a sip and you know do that old Budweiser commercial where you spit it out or have that bitter beer face or anything like that, right? So um, for, yeah, for today, what I picked out was um, probably my main one that I would start with, but obviously it's up to you guys, whatever you want to do with your tasting is uh, Invita. Invita is our Mexican lager. It's 4.5%. This is a beer that really focuses on the malt bill. So malt's, of course, going to give you that sugar, which then, of course, gives you that ethanol, that alcohol. And it's mainly focusing on that because this beer style uses about 30% corn in the malt bill. So there's a little bit more of a sweetness to it. And even though there's still going to be hops, hell yeah, even though there's still going to be hops in that beer, of course, there's not going to be giving any bitter profile to the hops like a traditional West Coast IPA would be. A lot of people come in and they say, oh, do you have anything that's light on tap? Always kind of lean them towards Invita. Also for me, if I'm there, you know, for a 10 plus hour day, and obviously I want to sip on a beer or two, it's going to be in Vita because it's lower alcohol content, but still a lot of flavor. Um, so that's one that I picked out, which I was super stoked on. Uh, it was a beer that we had brewed just draft only to start. And then we saw that in San Diego being so close to the border of Mexican lagers, uh, it's a beer that really, really flew off the shelves for us. So it's actually the newest addition to the core lineup, which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, that's in Vita, 4.5%, super approachable, really easy drinking. I saw Dan smell it. That's uh, he's a a beer a beer tasting connoisseur apparently. I love it. Yeah, no, I mean when you're looking at you know the the, the taste of beer, you know it's ninety or taste of really anything. It's about eighty to eighty five percent aroma as far as what you're going through. So you also see people you know really going into that glass and swirling around and checking it out and be like, oh, you know, yeah. what kind of you know, profiles do you get off of it? So. So yeah, that's Invita. Um, the other ones that I picked out on there, if, correct me if I'm wrong, Carlsbad Crush I put in there, correct? Yep. Yellowish green. Yeah, that would be the next one I would go with. Carlsbad Crush is going to be our third best-selling beer. It's a 100% mosaic pale ale, a little bit higher alcohol content than Invita. It's about 5.8%. And you are kind of increasing in the bitterness or hoppiness of a beer just because more hops are being added and at different times of the brewing process. But what's really cool about this beer is there's only one hop that's used throughout the entire brew of it, and that's Mosaic. A mosaic for us is definitely a very popular hop for like flavor profiles and like smell when you guys go through it. Um, kind of reminds me of like a mixed berry medley, blueberries, raspberries, blackberries on there, kind of jammy as well. But then you still have you know, a slight booze with that five eights, but not like it's, you know, going to fuel a jet plane or anything like that too high octane, but it's going to be a really full bodied beer, but also a beer that you could crush. Hence the name Carlsbad crush. <laughs> Got it. Fitting. Yeah. Super stoked on that the one. Colors, the yeah. colors of some of these cans are pretty good. They stand out and they're, they're easy to distinguish. Totally. Yeah. I mean, we, we've been canning for geez, uh, I would say about 
three and a half to four years of our time as a company, probably even longer. And um, one thing that we wanted to do was, again, separate ourselves from all the other beers that's in cans or bottles or whatever vessel you're selling your beer in. And uh, the gradients do great for us, but also just that logo really does pop and it's really, really cool. And then when we do seasonal like one-off beers too, it's it's all done in-house, which is rad. We have a really, really great marketing coordinator. Her name's Mackenzie. And she actually had never worked in the beer industry before, but she designs all the cans by hand before we even release them. And sometimes she has to, you know, know and develop these can arts and labels before we even know like what the beer is going to be, which is really, really cool. So, um, yeah, it's definitely, it's something I could never do. I, I could sell it and I could drink it pretty well, but I could not develop a cool can like Mackenzie can. <laughs> yeah. yeah so they definitely pop. Fresh is really good. Um, yeah. I'm liking that one a lot, especially if, you, if, you, if you're if you're a hophead and you enjoy you know beers that have that hop presence. I always kind of tell people to go for that, and it's cool because you can really find out like, oh wow, I know that I've had beers with mosaic in them, but I don't know if I really like it. And now having a beer that just has mosaic in it, everyone's like, oh yeah, I love mosaic. That's awesome. Or I don't like mosaic, so you can figure that out, which is rad. And then other two go to the IPA side of what we have in the core lineup. I'll leave I'll leave the haze for last, so I'll go with Trivana next. Trivana is going to be the beer of San Diego. This beer is 7.2% mosaic and Amarillo. It's got upfront bitterness and pine and resin to it, which is absolutely amazing. Definitely our best-selling beer since it came out um, at the early start of the company. It is definitely going to be the most bitter beer that you guys will have on that four lineup today. Not the most bitter beer that we brew because we have dived into a couple double IPAs and higher alcohol content beers. But at 7.2%, it is that beer of San Diego. It is the beer of San Diego. And we sell it fly out. We see it fly off the shelves at all of our tasting rooms and even just in cans at local stores as well. And that's a fun one to kind of go into as well because people think San Diego and you think IPAs. And this just kind of encompasses it all together, which is great. And then the the piece de resistance, because I know the, the Dans were little, little, little haze boys, right? You liking those hazies? So we have Juice Press. Juice Press, Citra, Nelson, Mosaic, an absolute murderer's row of hops. Um, tropical, very juicy profile, super soft mouthfeel, 6.8%. So it's going to be up there in the realm of Juice Press, not quite as high. Or sorry, in Trivana, not quite as high. But um, this is a beer that really showcases the style of a hazy IPA. It's something that you're starting to see a lot more of because the whole haze craze is a huge thing in San Diego. A lot of people wondered if it was going to be here for a while and stay, and I think it definitely is. It's a style that kind of originated in New England, so you kind of hear people call them like Northeastern or like North New England-style IPAs. But basically what it means is it's less bitter, so the hop additions are going to be taking later place in the brewing process, so you get more aroma and more flavor from the hops rather than bitterness. And then you have to change up stuff like your yeast in there to make it more juicy. And then also your water profile, you're going to be using a lot more softer water to establish that character to it rather than like hard water, which is what you'd be doing for like West Coast IPAs and stuff like that. Great. No, I, I just uh, got to, you know, try four beers, which isn't normally what I get to <laughs> do on a weekday afternoon. Um, right. It's a good Tuesday. I, like them all. I think there, there's a good variety too for the, the, you know, I think to your point, it's like if, if someone comes in to Burgeon, and they're maybe not a beer drinker. There's options for them if they're not usually really into beer. But if you're also sure. a beer person or a beer connoisseur like Dan is, yeah, um, right. There's options for you too. So 
Yeah, no, super rad. It's it's nice to be able to share with people. I mean, it's it's really crazy. The the job is drinking beer, talking about beer, and hanging out with great people. So it's 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 amazing that I get to, you know, I get a paycheck, you know, for that, which is pretty rad. <laughs> that is good for sure. Well, awesome. This has been great. So I guess you know, Dan asked for a suggestion. You know, Dan, have you have you chosen which one you're going to maybe continue to to drink through our conversation here, or is it still up in the air? Oh, I I think it. Um... Well, actually, I, I like them all. I think I might go with the Trivana. Nice. Yep. I think San Diego, I, Noah, you, you touched on this, is kind of known for the the hoppy IPAs. For sure. Um, Stone kind of started that, I guess, a while back, and it's kind of, you know gone on to where now you said there's 160 breweries in San Diego, so there's, there's plenty of them. But it seems like the IPA is still kind of the cornerstone of the San Diego beer scene, so that's, that's probably a good pick. I'm going to go with the yeah, juice press myself. As you mentioned, I am kind of a, a hazy person, a hazy fan. So <laughs> nice. Hell yeah. Press, but this has been really great. So, Noah, thank you very much for coming on and, and sharing us, sharing a little bit about Virgin and some of these beers. Yeah, of course. Um, and we're going to go and, and kind of dive into a biotech conversation and uh, continue enjoying them. So thank you. Love it, guys. Yeah, no, thank you for having me on. Enjoy the beers and hope the conversation gets better and better with each sip. There we go. Thank <laughs> you. Noah. Great to meet you. Cheers, guys. Yeah, nice to meet you too. Have a good one. Thanks. Okay. All right. So, so Dan, before I, you know, ask you for kind of a, an update and kind of maybe some info on Veracta, we'd love to have you just tell us a little bit about your backstory and, and how you got to the point you're at today. Sure. So uh, I guess, first of all, Dan, thanks for, for the invitation. And obviously we've known each other in town uh, for a long time. And so great to be reconnected and, and share a beer here. This is, this is fun. Yeah. Um, I mean, a little bit about my backstory. I've, I've I came to Viracta. I'll kind of work in reverse chronology. Uh, go for it. Go back back in time. So I've been at Viracta almost three years now. Came to Viracta to work with our CEO Ivor Royston, who you you may know of, uh, kind of a pioneer in, in the biotech space. Helped put San Diego on the map in biotech, having founded, being one of the scientific founders of IDEC, which is now Biogen uh, and Hybertech, and 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 some and some others along the way was really a unique opportunity to come into a company that had a, a, a need to assemble capital, uh, build a team out. And that was, seems like time has gone quickly. So almost three years ago, we're, we've, we've made a lot of great progress. We'll come back to that. But before Viracta, I was seven years at another biotech in San Diego called Regulus Therapeutics. This was a kind of a, a micro RNA uh, platform technology play that was born out of a joint venture between a couple of other biotechs. Uh, Ionis Pharmaceuticals and El Nylum, and and that was really one of the one of the bells of the ball in biotech in the in the 2013 2014 timeframe, and and then has has been a company that's you know, as many biotechs do has had its challenges, and so really had an opportunity to see a lot of the the range of what biotech can be, especially for a finance person and a bit in a business operator. So I was seven years at Regulus here in San Diego, and previous to that I was seven years at a, a what was a private company in the healthcare space, it was a company called Prometheus Laboratories. And it was a specialized company focused in, in gastrointestinal diseases and in oncology, had both a pharmaceutical and a diagnostics franchise. Very unique opportunity for me as I got to sit on the staff of the chief commercial officer, a guy named Ron Rocca, who's now the CEO of Exogen, which is a diagnostic company in the North County, but really got to see what it, what it meant to run a commercial pharmaceutical and diagnostics enterprise and, and had a really very rich seven years there. Company was ultimately acquired by Nestle Health Science, uh, and what was a great exit. So I kind of had a really interesting, kind of very rich, early on opportunity. I took that position at the age of 26 
as a corporate controller in a profitable commercial business, which I think kind of put me into the deep end of kind of the, the finance world very quickly, having come straight from there out of Ernst & Young, which is you know, one of the larger accounting firms. And so uh, my, my pedigree, I guess, if you want to call it that, I'm a CPA by training, uh, accounting background, but has quickly evolved then, you know, through the, the business operations and, and uh, now biotech operations mode 22 years later. So you kind of, you, you, uh, not too far out of college, you, you obviously got some great experience at Ernst & Young. It, it, that seems like a very a common denominator, if you want to call it that. There's a lot of people that work in the biotech finance world here in San Diego that have an EY background, it seems. But you, you jumped into the kind of deep end of the pool early on. I think at 26, that's, you know, it's, it's one thing, I think when you're in your 20s, you, you kind of feel invincible still. But I think looking back, to have that experience at such a young age, I'm sure, is um, something you have to be pretty proud of and, and maybe a little bit uh, impressed by, I guess, for yourself. Well, I, I think, you know, timing is everything. It's, it's often kind of opportunities present themselves and you don't have to look for them, but you should listen when they, pre- when they do present themselves. And this was one where it was an opportunity I couldn't pass up, got to work with some great people, a biotech veteran CFO and Mike Swanson hired me there. Just got to work with a terrific group of people that I'm still still friends with. Uh, I just actually ran into one of the head of commercial at Seaside Market here in in in, uh, in Cardiff the other day. Hadn't seen him in five years. So, it, you know, biotech in San Diego, as you say, you know, a lot of us in the finance community start out at these big four accounting firms, or are now the big four, or other public accounting firms. But quickly, then you know, you spin up uh, into other opportunities along the way. And, and I guess I'm no I'm no different there. I'm familiar with Regulus. Regulus is public. I think that yeah. from remember correctly, they went public while you were part of the team there, right? Uh, they went public just just before I arrived. So okay. They, they closed their public offering in October. I joined the company in December. I got it. And it was Prometheus public or private? Nope. That was uh, very interesting. We were private. We were the IPO that never were. We we tried every quarter. We we had filings with the SEC for 21 consecutive quarters. And this was in the time of of the Bear Stearns meltdown and other things, Lehman Brothers, where it was just the markets just evaporated while we continued to have extremely profitable business. And so oftentimes an IPO is a dual path strategy between going public and perhaps, you know, having a, a acquisition of the company. And and I think in retrospect, perhaps that was what happened there as we kind of took that left turn into more of the strategic outcome rather than seeing the IPO all the way through through those very tough markets. Yep. Well, that's that's great. So you've had experience in in kind of a like private, public, and um, in some cases, kind of in between. Sounds like so. Tech, big and small. Um, yeah. I, I think uh, Noah mentioned his uh, Burgeon's twenty five employees. Virac is half of that. Okay. We're twenty five today, and we were seven or eight when I joined the company. So it's you know these this industry is very dynamic, and companies yep. can grow, expand, contract quite quickly. Yeah. Sure. So that brings you to Viracta, where you're where you're now that currently the COO and CFO. So you kind of wear right. a couple hats. A couple hats. Yeah, common in small biotech. Sure, sure. Tell us a little bit about what Viracta is is working on and kind of what what the what the company is hoping to accomplish. Yeah. So Viracta is a really interesting and totally differentiated opportunity from a drug development standpoint in our pursuit. Where if you just take a step back and you say, okay, precision oncology cancer, you know, drug development, well, us and everybody else, right? This is a very broad statement. But we really focus at the intersection between virology, viruses, and oncology. 
And it's at this intersection that there's actually a very a significant kind of understudied space. And it's in the literature, it's in, in the scientific journals that you'll read that 15 to 20% of all cancers are associated with a latent virus, latent meaning not active, not, not hurting you. It's, it's, it's residing in, in a latent form, but associated with the cancer nonetheless. We then take that one step further and focus on a specific virus today called the Epstein-Barr virus. And EBV, I'll refer to it, is associated with approximately 2% of the global cancer burden. Now, what makes Viracta unique, it's not just that we're focusing on EBV-associated cancers, is that we are focusing on a latent virus, which is a totally different modality to target a latent virus that is in many cases oncogenic or, or can be in some cases the cause of the virus. And so we have a combination drug product that we call Nanoval, just a combination of two oral agents dosed together that we're able to target this latent virus. So really what the whole big promise of Viracta is, even though we're starting in say lymphoma, we believe that we have an approach that's agnostic to the kind of cancer that you have as long as this latent virus resides in your cancer, we have a target to pursue. So we're starting in EBV-associated lymphomas. We've got terrific data showing 50 to 60% response rates and it's very difficult to treat. Patient population, we're in a pivotal study there. And we we're, we're just have announced we started enrollment in EBV-associated solid tumors. So this is a different, think more like solid tumor mass. Solid tumors starting with cancer of kind of the back of your, your throat, nasopharyngeal carcinoma, again, associated, if not driven, by the same virus. So the big key to unlock here is, or uh, lock that we think we can, we can unlock with, with our key is pursuing EBV-associated cancers with this targeted uh, approach to the latent virus. Got it. Yeah. Interesting. So what led you to start with focusing on Epstein-Barr virus? I guess, is it, is that was, was that, I guess, an obvious place to start or is there maybe history to why you started there? Yeah, I think the, the history of why we started is it, it comes, it comes back to our scientific founder, a guy by the name of Douglas Fowler, who discovered when at the time he was, uh, I believe the head of the cancer center at Boston university that he could target this latent virus, Epstein-Barr virus, in the in lymphoma patients. He could reverse this viral latency and then use the other component of the combination drug, which in this case is an antiviral called valgansiclovir, that can then kill the cell by, by uh, integrating into that cell's attempt to replicate. So he demonstrated that this concept was druggable. He patented it, and we exclusively licensed those patents from BU. Uh, and that's really the basis around which Viracta was formed was, was that IP. Got it. Okay. And was Viracta, were you guys operating from my favorite office in San Diego at that point? Is that, has that always been the home or is that a more recent change? We're situated in, a, in a, an office only space right on the Pacific Coast Highway in, in Cardiff. Uh, and the company was incubated here and has, has slowly grown its, its footprint. So yeah, we're still here in the space that you remember. Oceanfront office. So you know, if you guys are, I know you guys are in uh, growth mode. So as you're recruiting, I think it's important for everyone to know, especially if you're in uh, Chicago or somewhere where the winter is terrible, you could be in an oceanfront office in San Diego. So it, it is a it is a differentiated recruiting tool. I, I guess for some, just when you think about, you know, you come to check out Viracta, this is not the location that you expect. But because our model, we're a virtual biotech, we don't have a laboratory in the back. 
really what we do is, is a highly efficient business model where we outsource a lot of the research work, lab work, clinical trial work obviously is happening uh, around the globe at different clinical sites. We're able to really exist in any office environment. And this is the basis of where the company started and, and uh, this is where we are today. Yep. And so I guess since I've been familiar with the company and since you've been there, you guys, I, I believe, had, had a fundraising round and then obviously also went through the IPO process. Would you mind kind of sharing? I mean, that was obviously in a different, it feels like a, a lifetime ago because it was pre-COVID, but would you mind just kind of sharing a little bit about what that process was like? Sure. So I guess, so I joined the company in July, 2019, and the company had about $5 million on the balance sheet and, and was in, in serious need to raise capital. And so we quickly assembled a Series D preferred stock financing that was in October of 2019. And that really carried the company as the clinical trial was continuing to mature and patients were, were enrolling and the data was becoming more robust. And it was over then the year of 2020 that we were really looking to do what's called a crossover round, which is kind of that pre-IPO financing round. And you know had, had really every intention to raise money uh, using that traditional path. And interesting, you know, I think as, as a small biotech, this was not, this was in the days of COVID, but not in the, in, with the biotech malaise that has been overhanging the sector of late, you, you're open-minded as you're raising capital. And, and so our pursuit was to go down this regular way path of a crossover. And we had interested investors around the table and, and an opportunity presented itself for an alternative path to ultimately get public, which is called a reverse merger where there was a, a target company that, that existed that had cash on its balance sheet, but was looking for a private company to essentially acquire it and, and for it to more or less dissolve its business and that the acquiring company, in this case, Viracta, to survive. So we went through this process with a company called Sunesis Pharmaceuticals. This would have been in the, in the kind of late 2020 timeframe and ultimately struck an arrangement to merge the companies. It was around this merger then that we set out to raise capital with anchor investors that we had in hand, smart money, healthcare-focused investors. And we set out to raise $80 million with the merger as the anchor point. And we ended up getting significantly oversubscribed interest levels and ended up raising $105 million in what was a two-part financing. We, we raised $40 million right before the merger was announced. And then we, we got the balance. $65 million was funded when we closed the merger three months later. And that was the way that Viracta got public, kind of a structured kind of series of uh, financing merger, financing in a, in a well-orchestrated process that culminated almost exactly one year ago. It was the 24th of February in 2021. That was when that all came to be. And, and uh, that ever since then, the company's been public. So I, I work in, uh, in the world of finance and help clients with banking, and, and we occasionally have financial planning conversations with people. So when when I hear the word you know the term IPO, generally that sounds like a really exciting like outcome for a business because you you assume that means that that some of the founders and kind of key stakeholders are able to to sell shares and maybe kind of have a life changing financial event. It, it also though I'm sure opens the company up to additional scrutiny that that maybe it wasn't didn't have to to kind of live up to or, or deal with when it while it was private. Is there is there any truth to that? Is there is it is there kind of maybe in some cases a downside to being a public company? Being public is a choice that companies make, and I th how I think about kind of an IPO and and being a publicly traded company is like this. So an IPO is really just a way to raise capital. 
It's a way to access the market using a different channel and maybe a different group of investors. Public company investors are often different than private company investors or venture capitalists or, or what have you. And so the, the question of does it, should a company go public or not is really a fundamental question of do we need to raise capital or not? And if we do, is that the way that we want to raise it? That's kind of the first way I'd answer the first part of your question. Sure. Yeah. I think once you're public, so if you say, look, we want to go public because we want to access that public market where equity is our currency now, we can, so we can always sell more stock to raise more dollars to fund our business, that's fine. But once you're public, you're signing up for not just increased scrutiny, you're kind of signing up for a difference in your way of life. So you've got rigors around quarterly financial information. There's a lot that you can't disclose, or if you do, there's ramifications to that disclosure. So it's kind of a what you can and can't say constantly. The whole concept of how lucrative it could become for its, its employees or, or its uh, executives or, or legacy shareholders is highly subjective to the facts and circumstances of what actually transpires once you go public. Uh, there's a lot of paper millionaires that are are made and then that goes away because things change. Uh, the market is efficient in its valuation, ideally, not always efficient, not rational. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think that you know it's it's a it can become a, a path to liquidity uh, for investors if they say, well, look, I know that I have a million shares and I know that I don't want to own them anymore. Going public gives me an avenue to naturally sell them into the marketplace. That's one consideration that exists, but shouldn't be the reason you go public. And so, since you since you guys went public, and what, so it was 2020. Was it early 2020? Uh, we we closed the merger 12 months ago. Okay, all right. Oh, so it's been to 2021. So you're know, looking back to the start of COVID. The start of COVID, the market, the public markets, obviously initially had a really rough rough patch, just to put it lightly, and then have rallied back and had a, a, a pretty amazing year. And you know. COVID in general, it's been surprising how well the public markets have done and how well equities have done. It's I think life science companies seem like they were seeing a large influx in cash and did really well through the majority of the pandemic. And then, you know, up until recently, where it seems like things have kind of turned around a little bit and it's been a little bit harder for some life science companies and for maybe for the sector as a whole, even to, to perform well and in some cases maybe to raise money as needed. Have have you guys felt that or what what is the what has the last kind of six months or so felt like? Tough, for sure. I think the going back to the, the timeline that you just articulated, you know, 2020, where there's this macro kind of the, the market was so volatile because no one knew what coronavirus meant. The biotech industry and by extension, really, the innovators that were developing these vaccines helped keep biotech almost insulated from that some of that volatility where look this is how we're going to see our way out of this is through this this industry yep. so the modernas had you know unbelievable valuation growth uh, the profits that you're seeing in the reports from Pfizer and, and and other companies now that were really the the thought leaders on these vaccines was was breathtaking right it was significant how how much value was created and, and profits were generated and all the rest I think what's happened over the 2021 time frame and especially the second half look there's a lot of fatigue in the marketplace there are never been more publicly traded biotechs than there are today i heard a statistic from our bankers there's something like in the in the hundreds call it five six seven hundred different biotechnology names that if you're an investor how do you pick one how do you you can't follow them all and then so then what i think ended up happening is you see some generalist non-healthcare focused money who their sector rotation was out of 
healthcare because it had been so frothy for so long. Now you've got maybe a weakness in your in your demand. Uh, you've got high high valuations that then start to get weakened, and you've got funds that need to protect their own business, and so they're they're harvesting profits where they still have them to offset losses where they're getting other where they're seeing losses in other places. And then overall, overall, you just kind of saw this this kind of malaise come over the sector over second half of last year, and it's continued in, into the first part of 2022. And valuations have, in many cases, 80% off the, the highs with no changes in fundamentals, right? Nothing's changed about the fundamental business. You're seeing you know, a, a very high statistic of companies that are trading below their enterprise value, which is below their cash balance for all yep. intents and purposes, which really is there's dislocation there. And so, and I think the last point is as you're as you're seeing this kind of falling knife over the back half of last year, companies would put out good news, good press releases, good data releases, good advancements, corporate or, or regulatory or otherwise. And the stock would trade off on positive news. And what why? Well, likely because of all of these underlying fact patterns, you have under uh, investors that are perhaps using that positive news event and spike in volume as an opportunity to get liquid, to sell yeah. a big share you know, or a big block of shares in one go. And so all of these factors kind of compound. And I think people, the, the community thought, boy, let's just get through the, the year. Uh, let's get through 2021. 2022, January 1st is going to be a new day. And you know, I think it doesn't work like that. So I, I think it's just kind of continued. A lot of the technical uh, analysts out there are, are hoping that we're at, at or near a bottom now. Uh, where you know innovation and value will be rewarded again, and that's what we can. We have to trust that that will that will play out. Yep. So you, you've, as we kind of touched on earlier, you, you've had um, experience with with big companies, small companies, public companies, private companies. Some of the past guests on this show have been just getting started with their company, where they've got an idea, they've got maybe some technology that they've developed, and they're they're trying to see if they can commercialize it and make it into a company that, that can they can maybe get. To the size of a Veracta someday, and we also have listeners that maybe are, are with with private companies and are thinking about fundraising. Uh, maybe they're kind of at their infancy. From your experience, I mean, is, is there anything that stands out as maybe some advice that you would pass along to to someone in that position at this point? Sure, I, these may not be totally on point, but I, I think for for an individual who's trying to to start a company, have a mentor. You know, you got to have someone that you can talk to that's that's seen it, done it. And, and that you can bounce ideas off of um, operating in a, in a silo is not ideal. Number two, when it comes to more of the, the, the blocking and tackling of, of funding a company, you got you got to appropriately finance the business. And at the earliest stages, companies kind of live hand to mouth oftentimes, and that's kind of par for the course. But if you have an idea or you have a platform or you have something that needs to be advanced, don't Make, or I would, if you can, it's easier for me to sit here and say this, but I think if you can, try to fund with a bridge mentality, not a peer mentality. What you don't want to do is fund to the middle where you haven't hit your next inflection point. So fund like fund as a bridge. So I have cash to fund me through the next inflection point. Whereas uh, oftentimes, as you're going to see this year, a lot of biotechs were, are underfunded, have to raise at a time when they're at their weakest. You don't ever want to be in that position if you can help it. So make sure that you fund appropriately. Keep your your strategy and your options open. You know, make sure you're using appropriate decision analysis when it comes to okay. If I make this decision, am I locking in forever, or am I keeping my options, my other options open for as long as possible uh, before I make that kind of final call where it's kind of point of no return? 
So maybe just a couple of concepts to, to start out with. Uh, surround yourself with with a solid board. If you're starting out a company from kind of the beginning, you know, I think having board members that you can you can confide in, rely on, you know, that can give you that sound advice. That can be people that bring in others uh, is really important to have a strong board as an infant in an infant stages for a company. Um, oftentimes, people make decision investment decisions based upon the people that surround a company more than maybe even the underlying technology. Hey, if that person's involved, I'm, I, I believe in that person. So just things to consider. Yeah, no, that's that's really good feedback. The last point you made, you obviously have got uh, Ivor on your team that, that's uh, that's one of those people that I think a lot of people believe in. And I think it's probably, it's probably easy to get behind someone that's kind of viewed as being kind of an icon in the San Diego life science world. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, you, you, you get... There, biotech is full of of people that have really made major moves uh, in the space. I've had real the luxury of working with a number of them, you know, whether it be Stelios Papadopoulos, Bill Rastetter, Clantis Anthopoulos, Cyber Royston. These are people that are kind of known in the space and that that garner a following. And and it's it's great to kind of observe them, learn from them, uh, and then you know hopefully you know take the best pieces of of each of them and what you do. Yep. Well, so this has been a great conversation. Is there, before I let you go, is there anything else about, maybe about the San Diego life science landscape that you want to share or anything else about Viracta you think is important to be aware of? Maybe I'll take those questions in turn. I, I think, you know, the, the San Diego biotech economy is vibrant, a lot like the beer industry in San Diego, where if it's not, maybe these, these two could be the most exciting sub economies in San Diego uh, or subsectors anyway. And you know, Viract is a, a huge part. Uh, we we try to be a meaningful part of this ecosystem. Uh, it's a very tight knit group, and and I think what you're doing, Dan, is great to kind of get exposure to these guys. Because and going back to my point about there being 700 publicly traded biotechs, one of the things that smart innovation needs is share of voice. And how do you get share of voice? You get people talking about your story, uh, and having a platform to talk about what you're doing and why it's different. In our case, why targeting a latent virus is 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 novel and could be you know, uh, recapitulated in, in multiple different cancer types, and no one's doing that. That's that's important to be able to tell that story. As far as Viracta specifically, uh, we're a growing business with a lot of exciting things in front of us. We're a well-funded business, so we didn't underfund. Uh, we have cash into mid 2024, and and I think we're we're poised to do a lot of good things. So yeah, I really appreciate you having me on, Dan. That's great. No, and um, I'll definitely be following the company and hopefully, you know, we can have you back on maybe down the road a little ways so you can give us an update on how everything's going. Yeah, sounds great. Awesome. Well, Dan, thanks again for joining and um, we'll talk again soon. Okay, take care. Thanks for listening to the Biotech and Breweries podcast. If you found this episode interesting, please share it with a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app. For more information or to suggest a guest, please visit biotechandbreweries.com.